morning church and welcome to the first service of 2022. Happy New Year. <laughs> Happy New Year. 2024. <laughs> 2024. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> you see, I need to get up to speed quickly. So um, let's uh, rise and celebrate him. Uh, Bible says in Revelations 1 and 17, he is first and last. Bible says that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So let's uh, glorify his name from the depths of our hearts. Amen. 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 Please rise. Lord, I come. I confess. Bowing My one defense. 
to say that you're my God. You're all together loving, all together worthy, all together wonderful to me. Here I am. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together loving, all together. The King of Kings. Yes.
remain standing for prayer. Let us bow our heads and take a moment of silence as we go before the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this new year. Thank you for the breath of life. Thank you for your presence in our lives. We pray that as we start this new year off in worship, that this would be a year where you would be glorified in us. May this year be a year in which we find our soul's satisfaction in you. May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May it be so in our lives. Lord, you've lavished us with your love. You've set us free by your grace. You've launched us into your transforming story of redemption. There's nothing more we could want or hope for. This year, we don't come with a list of New Year's resolutions or promises of what we'll do for you. Instead, we simply want to start this year resolving to abandon ourselves to everything Jesus has done for us. Jesus is the promise keeper, not us. He's the one who's promised to make all things new, including us. Lord, at the same time, we confess that there are moments when we forget this. We forget about you altogether. We acknowledge and confess that we've sinned against you in thought, in word, in deed. We haven't loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. Deepen within us our, our sorrow for the wrong that we've done and the good that we have left undone. Lord, we pray for all the international workers who labor to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. We pray especially for our own, for John and Zarifa, Monica, John and Fanny, Henry and Barbara, and others not named. Lord, you know. We pray for their relationship with you, for spiritual rest, for maturity in the faith, that the spirit may overflow in their lives. We pray also for their emotional well-being, for peace, for joy, and hope that abounds. We pray for more workers in your vineyard because the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Send us out, Lord. And now we ask that you would help us in our worship. May we be like the psalmist who said, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant look to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes are on the Lord our God until he shows us mercy. Hear our prayers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, FBC. I'm going to share my personal testimony. I am the second of four siblings born to a middle-class family. We were raised as Catholics, but we were not practicing ones. As far as I can recall, we just seldom went to church as a family. As a young child, I could remember my parents arguing a lot. 
My dad was into heavy drinking and playing mahjong with friends and would come home in the wee hours of the morning already. There was no doubt my dad loved my mom, but the grip of the enemy through the vices he had was taking a toll on their marriage. I could recall my mom moving out of the house one time and brought us kids with her, and we lived in a rented place for a short while. My dad would then woo and pursue my mom again, and in no time, we were back to the main house. Because of the lifestyle of my dad, we kids were not close to him, as he hardly had time for us. My mom had an auntie who was a Christian who went to this Pentecostal church, and she received Jesus into her heart then. I remember us sneaking out from the back door of our house to go to church, but, eventually, but we eventually stopped as my dad got mad when he found out about it. In 1984, my dad was invited to a Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International Meeting, a gathering of Christian businessmen who loved the Lord. There he heard a testimony of a person who the Lord saved and changed. And my dad said to himself that he tried almost everything already, and so why not try Jesus? He figured he had nothing to lose. It was then that he received Jesus as his personal Lord and Savior, from then on, there was no turning back for my dad in living the Christian life. And our, family as, as, and our life as a family drastically changed for the better. It was also during that time that an American missionary came and planted a church in our town, Calvary Chapel, a non-denominational church teaching God's word book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. My dad was one of the first of five elders at church, and it was during this time that the Lord really allowed us to grow in him. It I was 11 years old then when I received Jesus as my Lord and personal Savior, and at age 14, I obeyed the Lord in baptism. It was awesome to know the fact that we have a God who loves us so much as to die for our sins that we can be reunited with him in fellowship. I was involved in different ministries at church, but I remember really started living the Christian life personally, independent of my parents' influence when I was 16 years old. By His grace, the Lord has caused me to grow in Him through the trials and testings that He has allowed in my life. He has brought me from faith to faith, patiently building my character to make me more like Him. My faith was tested several times, but a major one I had was on waiting and praying for the Lord to give my husband and I a child. After three years of praying, he finally granted our heart's desire when I got pregnant with our eldest. With the blessing came testing when he clearly spoke to me to join a shorter mission trip to Uganda, our first international trip as a church and one that we have been planning for a year while I was six months pregnant. The Lord saw me through the trip protecting me from potential diseases there like malaria. My story became a testament of God's keeping power when we obey him, and I was able to share it in one of our women's retreats back home later. I praise God that he is patiently still writing my story, molding me into the kind of woman that he wants me to be for his glory, as is said in Philippians 1 verse 6, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Three years ago, my husband of 19 years passed away 
suddenly without any warning. No medical issues, he just passed out in the house, and after four months, the Lord took him home. His passing has left me and the kids displaced emotionally, as we did not see it coming at all. With his death, the Lord has faithfully carried me through as a single parent, seeing his hand guiding me and protecting me every day. One challenge I have at present is just to be still and know that he is God, who is in control of my life, even in circumstances where I don't understand. I have to remind myself that he is more than enough for me, and he's just there always in times when I miss my husband. And he, he truly is, as he is true to his promise, that he will never leave me nor forsake me. And with that, I praise God and give him all the glory and honor. Thank you. Today's scripture reading is um, from Matthew 5, verse 1 to 12. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they, were, they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they, persecute, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Good morning, First Baptist Church of Flushing. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. New Year, new you. Now, I'm glad that you made it out here to worship the Lord on this first Sunday of the year, despite the weather. Now, our Father in heaven loves you very much and is pleased with your worship. He loves us when we're good. He loves us when, our, when we're bad. That's just the nature of who God is. He's a God of compassion, of grace, of mercy. Our God is a God of love. Now, today, as we begin this new year, we also begin a new series on the Sermon on the Mount. This Sermon on the Mount series is going to take us all the way into May. The very fact that we have a Sermon on the Mount is quite remarkable. Because as we look at the context of the Gospel of Matthew, we notice that prior to this point, when Jesus begins teaching... Jesus had a very successful healing ministry to the sick and the infirm. Now, why would he put aside such important work of bringing healing and life for the sake of teaching his disciples and the crowds that had gathered? 
And the reason is this. Jesus came to usher in the kingdom of God, the sovereign reign of God over the people of God. And in order to do that, Jesus needed to instruct and inject kingdom values, kingdom culture, kingdom norms into those who would follow hard after God. And up until this point, the disciples had only seen how the world worked uh, from what they saw around them, the rich getting richer, the powerful oppressing, the downtrodden, that if you wanted something, you needed to earn it. But in order for God's people to actually live like God's people, they needed to embrace a new set of values, a new way of seeing the world, a new way to live life that brings about human flourishing. In other words, what Jesus is doing in giving the Sermon on the Mount is he's activating his disciples uh, to become many, albeit imperfect, versions of himself so that the kingdom and reign of God would spread as the values and ethics and culture of the Sermon on the Mount are lived out. And what we have in the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached. The words in these three short chapters have shaped ethics for our world for over 2,000 years. Not over, for two, about 2,000 years. It's been noted that even people who do not profess to be believers, people like Thomas Jefferson, Mahatma Gandhi, Oprah Winfrey, have regarded Jesus to be the greatest moral teacher of all time. But there's something that you need to understand uh, about the Sermon on the Mount. Even though they're the highest ethics this world has ever seen, the commands of the Sermon on the Mount were not meant to be followed in our own strength. They weren't meant to be followed in our own strength. In fact, I'm convinced that even though following these values will lead to the most joy-filled, uh, purpose-filled life, it's not possible to follow the commands of the Sermon on the Mount without first following Jesus and receiving a new heart and a new nature. It's like that prophecy in Isaiah 11:6, which speaks of the wolf living with the lamb, uh, the leopard lying down with the goat, the calf and the yearling together with the lion. It speaks of a future when God's reign is so firmly established that the very nature of the animals will be transformed, where their relationship is no longer uh, one of predator and prey. But if we were to try this as an experiment at Bronx Zoo, we were to put the goats with the leopards, uh, calves with the lions, then that monorail safari would take on a new level of excitement. It just would not work. Something needs to change in the nature of the animals in order for them to live at peace. And likewise, something needs to change within our own natures in order for us to embody the values of the Sermon on the Mount. We need new hearts, new natures to change us from the inside out. And this leads us to our passage today, which is exactly one verse. Uh, it's the first of eight Beatitudes, and the Beatitudes come from the Latin Beatus, which roughly translates to happy, to blessed. Together, the eight Beatitudes serve as a key to happiness, a key to blessing for the believer. As one person noted, these eight things are descriptions of a saved person's heart, a heart blessed by God, a heart filled by God, a happy heart. And today we're going to focus on the first of the eight Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. At first glance, the beatitude seems to not really make sense because we live in a society that values winning, 
that values confidence, that values leadership, independence, success. And there, there's a lot of different seminars, conferences that promise financial freedom, but I have yet to hear of any seminar that promises poverty of spirit. Or think about job interviews. All candidates will uh, present themselves in the best possible light. The one who comes across as the most capable usually gets the job. It's not the one who highlights how vastly underqualified and unqualified for the job they are. No one ever says, I'm the wrong person for the job, and then gets the job. That's just not how it works. But when we actually comprehend, when we actually appreciate what poverty of spirit means, it's this spark that sets off a chain reaction in our own lives. It will transform and unleash a power for living that you cannot even imagine. It will bring about a joy, a soul satisfaction that nothing in this world could ever bring. My prayer is that this beatitude would, you, would set you on this path of purpose, this path of life as you give yourself to the leading and the prompting of the Lord. So I, I want to pray now, and after we pray, we're going to jump in. Would you all bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer together? Let us pray. We pray that old Anglican prayer. Father in heaven, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, kindly make us for your son's sake. Amen. So first, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? So just what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Perhaps the best way to define poverty of spirit is by starting with what it is not what it is not. Being poor in spirit is not about material poverty. It doesn't re refer to lacking financial resources or worldly possessions. It's not a rejection of material blessings or, or success. Jesus here is not condemning prosperity or, or suggesting that wealth is inherently sinful. There is nothing meritorious about being poor in and of itself. And, and Jesus isn't highlighting a specific socioeconomic status. But instead, what he's doing is he's uh, addressing a disposition of the heart. Now, neither is being poor in spirit a call to self-deprecation. It's not about diminishing your own self-worth. It's, it's not about saying that I'm a nobody. Jesus is not, ab ab Jesus is not advocating uh, for a defeatist mindset or, or encouraging people to just put themselves down. It's also not a call to passivity or re resignation. Poverty of spirit does not mean becoming passive, indifferent, or fatalistic. Instead, it involves an active surrender to God's will, a willingness to align our desires with God's, and, and a commitment to follow his guidance in our lives. In essence, being poor in spirit is the recognition of our need for God's grace and a humble submission to his authority. It's acknowledging that true fulfillment and true righteousness doesn't come from our own efforts, it doesn't come from our accomplishments, but it comes from a deep dependence on the mercy and love of God. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee was an upstanding member of society. He was the kind of person that men wanted to emulate and mothers wanted their daughters to marry. He was a model for society because he carried himself with integrity. And on the other hand was this tax collector. This tax collector was the complete opposite. P. 
People saw him as a lowlife, a person who sided with the Roman government, who extorted his own people. In the parable, the tax collector couldn't even look up at heaven as he pleaded with God to have mercy on him, a sinner. Yet, when both men prayed, it was the tax collector who was justified before God and not the Pharisee. Why is that? Now, some may wonder if the Pharisee should have been more modest in his prayer. Instead of saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, maybe he should have been more low-key and less of a brag. But I would say that his problem was far more than just a lack of modesty. Because modesty is all about how we present ourselves to other people. His real problem was his lack of humility, what he is before God. His problem was a problem of pride. The Pharisee thought he did quite well as he was looking around and he saw that he lived a life more upright than the people around him. Certainly in life there are people who live better lives and people who live worse. And, but what the Pharisee forgot was that no matter how good, he ultimately fell far short of the glory of God. The Pharisee played this game of comparison. And next to the tax collector, he looked great. That's the big problem with being rich in ourselves. It makes us proud. It makes us look down on others. The Pharisee saw himself as clearly head and shoulders above the tax collectors. When we're proud, everything is seen through the lens of comparison, of competition. Comparing ourselves with others is like one blade of grass saying to another blade of grass, I'm taller than you. That may be so. But when you're looking down at the grass from a window on the 10th floor, then all of a sudden, all of it looks as smooth as a marble. And when God looks on us, it's like he's looking down from the 10th floor. And what we have all come to realize is we've fallen far short of his glory. But there's more to the problem of pride. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, spoke of how the essence of pride is competition. And he writes, Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or clever or better-looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. As long, and here's the problem, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that's above you. Spiritual poverty is the emission of our brokenness and bankruptcy. Let me say it one more time. Spiritual poverty is the emission and experience of our brokenness and bankruptcy. It's a complete dependence on God. It's this complete absence of pride. It's a complete absence of self-assurance, of self-reliance. It's recognizing our own emptiness, our own desperate need for God. It is going to God empty-handed and asking him to fill us up. Now, some may wonder, doesn't that mean that Christianity is a crutch? And early on in uh, John Piper's ministry, he was speaking one time to a group. And at the end of the talk, a student asked, 
Isn't Christianity a crutch for people who can't make it on their own? And I love how John Piper answered, because he looked at the guy and he said, yes, yes it is. But then he goes on to say, why is the thought that Christianity is a crutch considered to be a valid criticism of Christianity? People don't usually look at a crutch and say, that's bad, it's just a crutch. People don't in general think that crutches are bad things. Why does a crutch become a bad thing when it's Christianity? Now, if you think about it, if someone has a sprained ankle or a broken leg, no one would go up to that person and say, I can't believe you're using a crutch. Just put it down. Walk like a normal person. No one would go up to a person wearing glasses and say, ha ha, look at this loser wearing glasses. Just see already. I mean, there are people like that, but we call them jerks. Now, you know what's worse than having to wear glasses? It is needing to wear glasses, but pretending that you don't need them. I remember when I was in junior high school, I was going through one of those angsty teenage phases, right? I was mad that I needed to wear glasses. Uh, I didn't want to look like a nerd, but I didn't have money for contact lenses. So then one day I just took off my glasses and I pretended I didn't need to wear glasses. Uh, and uh, so I, I was walking around and it was the worst day ever because not only could I not see, but the whole day people kept asking me, what happened to my glasses? <laughs> Maybe it was because I kept running into the garbage can or something, but people kept saying, you need your glasses. When people can't see, they wear glasses. When people need help walking, they use crutches. And when people find that they are in need, they turn to Jesus. Returning to Piper, he writes, I think the answer that most critics would give is this. If Christianity is a crutch, then it's only good for cripples. But we don't like to see ourselves as cripples. And so it is offensive to our self-sufficiency to label Christianity as a crutch. But Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, the only people who will ever come to get what Jesus has to give are sick people. People who know that they're spiritually and morally and very often physically crippled. Now, receiving Jesus and, and turning to him as Lord is one of the most humbling acts that anyone will ever go through. Because when we draw near to Christ, we come admitting that we're not as strong as we think we are. We come admitting that we're not as good as we had hoped that we were. And we come admitting that we're so broken on our own that only God can mend us back together. The late Tim Keller wrote an article on uh, Jesus as the great gift. It was a Christmas article in the New York Post. And he said that Jesus is this great gift that's hard to receive. And he said, some, gift by the very, some gifts by their very nature make you swallow your pride. Imagine opening a present on Christmas morning from a friend, and it's a dieting book. Then you take off another ribbon and wrapper, and you find another book from another friend, Overcoming Selfishness. If you say to them, thank you so much, <laughs> you are in a sense admitting, for indeed I am fat and obnoxious. In other words, some gifts are hard to receive because to do so is to admit you have flaws and weaknesses and that you need help. Perhaps on some occasion you had a friend who figured out you were in financial trouble. They came to you. They offered a large sum of money to get you out of your predicament. 
If that's ever happened to you, you probably found that to receive the gift meant swallowing your pride. Never has there been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths as that gift Jesus requires us to do so. Admitting our spiritual poverty means we're so lost, so unable to save ourselves that nothing less than the death of God the Son himself could save us. That means you're not somebody who can pull yourself together, live a moral and good life on your own, but when we do receive the gift, what we come to find, it's exactly what we needed. Throughout the Bible, we see example after example of people who turn to God empty-handed, subsequently receiving God's great blessing of his presence, of his purpose for living. We remember Moses and how he was the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had everything he could want in a worldly sense. And then one day he saw an Egyptian mistreating a Hebrew, and he killed that Egyptian. This leads to decades on the run in obscurity, working as a shepherd in a foreign land. And by the time that the Lord calls Moses, he's no longer the brash young prince who murdered the Egyptian. He is a man who has been broken, and he freely acknowledges his own limitations, how he's slow of speech and tongue, going so far as to ask God, send somebody else. And yet, and yet, it's this humble Moses, not the young, brash, self-sufficient Moses whom God uses to deliver the Israelites out of the grip of slavery. Consider King David, the man after God's own heart. It's this very same King David who prayed, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you, and we have given you only what comes from your hand. This man who saw his great need for the Lord is the man that God used to build his kingdom. Consider John the Baptist who confessed that Jesus is the one who comes after him, the straps of whose sandals he's not worthy to untie, and that Jesus must increase while he must decrease. Or the Apostle Peter, who was always the first to speak, but when he beheld the power and identity of Jesus on the lake of Gennesaret, he fell to his knees. He cried out to Jesus, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Yes, Christianity is a crutch in the sense that it's for those who can see their own desperate condition. But it's not just for a select few who are particularly weak. It is for the healing of a universal condition called sin. And it is for all people. Now, how do we inherit the kingdom of heaven? How do we inherit the kingdom of heaven? How do we draw near to God as a people who are poor in spirit? Allow me to describe it using an illustration from Donald Gray Barnhouse. Now, Barnhouse once described it in this way using a glass bottle. He says, if you submerge a bottle in water, what happens? Now, some of you will say that the air bubbles out and water flows in. But I've seen a bottle submerged in water and no air came out, nor did any water flow in. There was a cork in the bottle, which must first be pulled out. God is like that with us. He has the purpose, he has the power, but he will not ravish our beings. Love can never be commanded, and he wants to, us to love him so that he woos us by creating all the qualities which go with emptiness and frustration. But when we tell him, go ahead, do your work. Out comes the obstacles which keep him from filling our beings, and in comes the power of the Holy Spirit so that the life that life takes at once takes on this abounding quality. There is no abounding without the pressure of his power behind it. 
Nothing can overflow from us until we have first been filled, and we cannot be filled until his power comes in with the enabling. To be poor in spirit so that we would inherit the kingdom of heaven, we must open our lives to God, invite him to have his way with us. We have to uncork that bottle so that we can empty ourselves of ourselves and allow him to fill us to overflowing. Now, Jesus intentionally uses the imagery of spiritual poverty because uh, it's in order that we wouldn't miss the point that we can only come to him empty-handed with nothing to offer. Go to the Lord in prayer. Ask him, bless you with spiritual poverty. Tell him that you need him. Ask him to, to, to help you become aware of your own incompleteness. Ask him to grant you humility, brokenness, so that he might fill you up. Now, as we consider what, what it means and what it looks like to be poor in spirit, let me ask you a series of 10 questions, questions that you can reflect on in figuring out where you are in this journey. Now, answer them as honestly as you can because it's only between you and the Lord. Question one, do you find yourself trying to prove that you're right? Two, do you have a drive to be recognized a drive to be appreciated? Are you a people pleaser? Three, do you get defensive when you are criticized? Four, do you have a hard time admitting when you were wrong and asking for forgiveness? Five, do you compare yourself with others in order to find your worth? Six, do you stay very general when you confess your sins? Seven, do you have a critical, fault-finding spirit? Eight, when you've sinned, is your instinct to cover it up? Nine, do you have a self-sufficient, independent spirit? And finally, 10, do you have trouble going to the Lord in prayer? Now, if you've answered no to all of these questions, there's a scientific term to describe you. We call that a pathological liar. <laughs> it's a joke, but really. Now, if we've been completely honest, then chances are you've answered yes to multiple questions. God can only fill empty vessels. When we we're too full of ourselves, there's no room for God to work. And the key to becoming poor in spirit really is learning to get over ourselves. Sometimes people assume that it means that we put on a certain demeanor, we act like we're not good at something when we are. That's not it. Pastor Gary, he's a good preacher. Pastor Shiway, he's a good shepherd. I'm a good hype man. It's true. We know what we are, right? We don't deny it. We, we don't deny the gifts that we have. After all, what gifts do we have that God hasn't given to us? What spiritual poverty means, though, is that we don't put our trust in those things. We don't turn inward. We don't gaze at ourselves. We don't say how great we are. We're not the center of the universe. Spiritual poverty means we put our trust in Christ. We fix our gaze on him. We don't trust in ourselves. And in fact, more often than not, we forget all about ourselves. I love this quote from Keller as he quotes C.S. Lewis. Now, if I quote more people, I'm going to need a bibliography. So here it is. He says, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility. 
at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. They would not be always telling us they were a nobody because a person who keeps saying that they're a nobody is actually self-obsessed. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself, it is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself. It's an end to thoughts such as, I'm in this room with these people. Does that make me look good? Do I want to be here? True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself, the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. Now, this year, as we start off 2024, right, let's take our eyes off of ourselves, fix them firmly on the one who alone can bring true happiness. Now, let's try to wrap things up. By show of hands, how many of you have ever been on a roller coaster as the roller coaster is going up, on the way up its first ascent, and you wonder to yourself, I wonder what would happen if the roller coaster breaks down midway? <laughs> I think, okay, yeah. I always think that. I, I don't know why I keep going up there. <laughs> well, in December 2016, in a ride at Knott, Knott's Berry Farm in California, the roller coaster actually did become stuck. And it was stuck at 148 feet in the air. Now, there were 20 people on board, including seven children. Firefighters tried to reach the stranded passengers by using this massive ladder, but it was still too short. So the fire crews had no choice. They would have to lower each passenger from 148 feet in the air, harnessed to a single rope. Now, uh, fire captain Larry Kurtz said, it sounds scary, but we have very, very strong ropes. <laughs> I mean, it's really strong. It's like 9,000 pounds of breaking strength on them. He was trying to build up the faith of those who were trapped. He was giving them information that if they believed it, it would dissipate their fears. It was up to each person, though, to believe what he said and place their trust in the firefighters. Now, every one of those people had to come to this point where they had to rely on something and someone completely outside of themselves. It was the only way they were going to be saved. They couldn't get themselves out of this mess. They had to trust the firefighter. They had to trust the rope to do what they said they would do. And thankfully, all 20 passengers were lowered safely to the ground just before 10 p.m. that night. And so it is with us. Blessed are the poor in spirit means that we've come to the end of ourselves we rely solely on the goodness of God to carry us through. We unlearn all those cues of the world to believe in ourselves, to trust in our abilities. Instead, we put our trust in Jesus, knowing that he alone can save. And in this new year, put your trust in Christ, whether it's for the first time or the hundred and first time. Come to him, acknowledging your own emptiness. He will fill you up. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we believe this truth with all of our hearts. So we come as poor and broken people, believing that, that you alone can fill us up. And so have your way with us, Lord, in this year and this day. 
have your way in us moment by moment, that we would learn to trust you, that we would learn to, to, uh, to know what it means to depend on the Spirit's prompting and leading. Help us to learn your voice, to obey you moment by moment. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Please let us rise for the response song.
we continue our worship with the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a time when we gather together with believers all around the world to remember the life, the death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord's Supper is super important in the life of the Christian because it's one of the, the few sacred acts that we have. It's a symbol of what Christ has done, what we needed in order to be rescued and to have new life. It's for believers in the Lord Jesus. If you're not yet a believer, we're so glad that you're here. We simply ask that you would use this as a time of uh, quiet reflection. Allow me to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take a moment of quiet reflection and spend this time with God. This is his body, broken for us. Let us take the bread together. Now in the same way, after supper he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take the cup together. Would you all pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for the work of Jesus. Thank you for the body that was broken and, and his blood, his precious blood that was shed for us. Lord, we believe that in Christ, we have been saved, we've been redeemed, we've been set free, and now we live new lives. So help us to walk in this truth all the days of our lives, to praise your holy name. Pray all this in Jesus' victorious name. Amen. So every first Sunday of the month, uh, we take a special offering called the Benevolence Offering. The Benevolence Offering, sometimes known as the Deacon's Fund or, or the Fellowship Offering, is a offering uh, that is above and beyond our usual offering. It is specifically for the felt, tangible needs of those within our church and sometimes even beyond the walls of our church. So we'll now take uh, the benevolence offering together.
So we'll continue to take a benevolence offering, but I'll begin our announcements. I want to welcome those of you to our first worship service of the year. And if there are other ushers who uh, are equipped with the welcome cards, I'd like to ask them to come up front. And what, you, uh, what we'd like to do is to welcome you to our service for uh, the new year. And if you're visiting with us today, we'd love for you to raise your hand and be bold and to identify yourselves to us so that we can extend to you a welcome card. And we ask that at the end of the service, you would take that to our visitors team in the lobby and that you'll get your gift bag to commemorate your visit and that we hope you seriously consider making this your spiritual home. Thanks for doing that. And uh, while I think we can do handle two things at once, uh, like, why don't you take this opportunity to welcome your neighbor and to wish them a happy new year. So welcome to our Winter Wonderland Worship, and I just welcomed you, so maybe one day I'll preach, because that was four W's in a row, right? <laughs> uh, Winter Wonderland Worship, okay, well, maybe that two-thirds of that is true. Uh, we also survived a 1.7 uh, Richter scale earthquake, and I'm glad to see Mac and Mary appear this morning, because it happened just underneath them in Astoria. So. Uh, thank you for surviving and making it out to church this morning. Let me begin with the, uh, the first announcement that we have, and that is uh, we have the Bible in One Year app. And as I was curious on the bus this morning, I decided to click on that link, and they've changed their name. So it's called the Bible with Nikki and Pippa Gumbel. Uh, they just changed their name. Uh, maybe there's a lawsuit or something. So th that's what uh, uh, their app is called now. And you can use this app to go through the new year and reading through the Bible, uh, going through their devotions. Uh, and here's a nice, interesting FAQ from their site. If you want to read through the Bible on their app, it's available in Arabic, Bahasa, Indonesia, English, Simplified Chinese, French, German, Hindi, Spanish, and Thai. I think that covers a lot of First Baptists, don't you think? <laughs> All right. Uh, as I was avoiding the earthquake, I uh, escaped to Pennsylvania after church last Sunday. And one of the things I did was with my niece and nephews, we watched Five Nights at Freddy's. Okay, so some of you don't know that. You don't, that that's a, sort of a kid's horror movie. And uh, one of the things that uh, I found uh, as I partially paid attention to this was I think uh, it was horror through animatronic characters, but I think that the Chuck E. Cheese on in Flushing is scarier than in this movie. And why do I, why do I, why do I mention this? Is because your your second item on our announcements is 
what might be for adults a, a horror uh, uh, show, which would be job search, right? Is this, a, is this a wonderful thing to think about at the beginning of the year? True story. Uh, and those of you who know me a long time, you can attest to this. But, <coughs> excuse me, twice in my career, layoffs, corporate layoffs, happened in the month of January. I can attest to that, because that's happened to me before. But uh, I'm going to respectfully disagree with the way this is uh, uh, worded in your bulletin. It says, for job seekers 18 and older, and I really think that this really should be uh, for all adults. So I know that in your pink insert here, it says right out top, on top, job seekers 18 or older. But I think this is for all adults. But since I don't want to steal her thunder, let me invite Lauren to give you more details on this new uh, class. Well, Soban is right. Job search can be a scary thing. So I just want to say that, uh, which is why we're offering this course. And it's a new year, right? So some of you may be thinking, what? maybe I'd like to have a new job this year, right? Raise your hand if you'd like a new job this year. All right, I'm talking to you. <laughs> OK, so. Zarifa, Tabitha, and I would love to invite you to join us for a Crossroads Career Job Search course starting on January 21. There are five sessions, and we'll be meeting on Sunday, and there's the five dates are in your bulletin, so you can take a look at it, five Sundays from 1.30 to 3.30. And let's play this video so you can She's one more. of 150 million people in the workforce, and she can't stand going to work each day. Like Julie, over 50% of people employed are dissatisfied with their jobs. This is Bill. He's been actively looking for a job. And like 20 million others who are unemployed or underemployed, 60% of them say they no longer have any hope of finding a job. This is Tom. He loves his job, and he's great at it, but he wants his life to be more purposeful. Tom wants to make a difference with the skills he has. According to a recent Gallup poll, the number one thing that most people want is a good job. Where does the church fit in? How can we help those in need? Crossroads Career Network has been designed to empower the church to help people find jobs, careers, and God's calling. And we offer the tools, training, and resources with a faith-based approach. Crossroads Career Network has what you need so you can take your career ministry to new places. The process revolves around a workbook and can be used in different group settings like group studies, workshops, coaching, and support groups. It all starts with looking upward, followed by the right attitude, the aptitude for the job you want, and the altitude to go further than you ever thought possible. Get started today and make an impact in your community by helping people find jobs, careers, and God's calling. Crossroads Career Network. So if you join our course, you'll learn practical skills like resume writing, interviewing skills, networking, using LinkedIn, and more. And what makes this course special is it it's designed to help you hear God's calling and to seek God in your career and job search. 
We'll be meeting in small groups for support and prayer, so you are not alone. And the course is free. All that we ask you to do is purchase a workbook for $15. And it's a beautiful workbook, glossy, so you can follow along with the course. Now, uh, you, there's a pink sheet in your bulletin. So to register, you would need to scan the QR code and fill out the form, or you can email me, and my email is on the insert. And um, I need to know um, by next Sunday. So it's kind of a short time frame. By next Sunday, um, because we're starting on January 21. And the other thing I wanted to mention is feel free to share this opportunity with a friend or a family member who could benefit. And especially someone that's unchurched. You know, it could be a great opportunity to invite a friend to church because it's coming right after the service. Pray about it. Love to see some of you there. Thank you. I'm so glad that's available to all of you. In many of my previous job searches, I didn't go through it with a Christian frame of mind in pursuing what I should do uh, at that time. So glad that these Christian-oriented materials are available to you. So I also encourage you to uh, take advantage of that course. Uh, we have an, another opportunity in a couple of weekends to have a family fellowship time together. So you see this insert here, the family fellowship potluck on Saturday, January 20th. Uh, this morning, uh, I got to sleep late, but Brother Alfredo just began a new adult Sunday school series in First and Second Peter on the question, what, how will you respond to trials and suffering? So please join that class as it's just beginning uh, now. And continue to uh, join us on Mondays at uh, noontime for, for prayer. Uh, ask Pastor Aaron for the link uh, to that prayer meeting. And also you had the opportunity to contribute uh, $25 for the beautification of our sanctuary here. Sign up with uh, uh, Angela Lee. And then also for your information is the Eighth Bridge Youth Group schedule uh, that's in your bulletin. And now I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward to, uh, so that we may receive your regular weekly offering. Would you pray with me as we uh, commit this offering to the Lord? Thank you, Lord, for uh, the opportunity to worship. Uh, and uh, although it may not be a winter wonderland, Lord, we know that we have the warmth of your people here, and we have the assurance, Lord, that uh, where we are gathered, you are there in our, here in our midst. So we thank you, Lord. We, we pray that you would delight in our uh, worship and in our offering this morning. Bless those who, who give, Lord. Help, help us with our spirits so that we may give with much joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Feet that walked the long dark. 
tender eyes that chose to forgive and never despise how Let me invite the worship team to join me up on the platform so we can uh, hear the words from the book, the short letter of Jude, which we read in our last Bible reading plan at the end of last year. And this is how he encouraged the believers. And this is our benediction today. Would you rise? So, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority 
through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Amen. Amen.